Jonah, you'll find it there in the Old Testament. Again, as I've mentioned, uh, feel free if you're not exactly sure where it is, don't hesitate to use that table of contents. Uh, just to help you uh, find the book, uh, it will be helpful for you to follow along in the sermon uh, with a copy of God's Word open in front of you. So I'd like to again uh, read through chapter 1 uh, as we this morning, uh, Lord willing, will finish chapter 1 uh, here uh, today. But there in Jonah chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 1, go ahead and follow along with me as I read from God's Word. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amity, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. And then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. And all the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. And the captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. And then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. And they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And so they asked him, Tell us. Who is responsible for making all of this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. And the sea was getting rougher and rougher, and so they asked him, what should we do? What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will be calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. But instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not. For the sea grew even wilder than before. And then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows to him. And now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. There is a saying, there's an old saying that goes like this. God writes... Straight lines with crooked sticks. God writes straight lines with crooked sticks. Now certainly there are other variations of this saying, but I think 
you and I can get the general idea how God writes straight lines with crooked sticks. We know that in our lives, we daily experience all types of twists and turns, don't we? There's victories and there's failures. There's great success and there are false starts. Daily in our lives, we experience joys and even at times deep sorrows. In our daily lives, we endure the consequences of our own sin. And we also experience the blessings of our faithful obedience. Now, I know some of us in here, right, you might be sitting there and you might think, Right now to yourself that right now the life that you had envisioned is, seems to be working out fine for you. But I think for most of us, our lives might not be anything like we had once dreamed. Has your life ended up exactly like you had envisioned when you were starting college? <laughs> no, many of us, right? It's probably, the, it's probably the younger folks who think, oh, life is pretty good right now. I'm good. So we all know that uh, for most of us, our lives aren't anything like we had once dreamed. And so the picture of a crooked stick seems to be maybe quite fitting, doesn't it? That, that all of our lives, in one way or another, seem to represent or look like this, this crooked stick. And yet, we believe, as the saying goes, God writes straight lines with, crook, with crooked sticks we do believe that God is still working, don't we? That God is still working out his perfect plan in our lives, even though he's dealing with a bunch of crooked sticks. In fact, turn to the person next to you and just say, you're a crooked stick. How'd that feel, Judy, to tell your sister she's a crooked stick? You've been waiting all your life, right? We all are, aren't we? And so this, this, does, this, this should relate because I think here in the book of Jonah, we're going to see if anyone's a crooked stick, it seems to be Jonah. And I think as Michael has already mentioned to us, I think a lot of us as we are studying this passage, we do see ourselves in Jonah, don't we? That Jonah is a mirror for us in our own lives. The big idea for today's sermon is this, is that God's ways are above our own and that we can trust him. That even though our life might just seem like a crooked stick, that God is still working out his perfect plan in it. And that God's ways, as we're going to discover this morning, God's ways are above our own. And that you can trust him. See, the story of Jonah, as we are learning, is indeed, it's a true story. We believe it to be a true story of how God used a crooked stick to draw a straight line. It's a story of how God is using a rebellious, a reluctant prophet to show off, to showcase the great mercy of God. And so here's where we rejoin the story. We, we find ourselves here in verse 6. This is where we got to the last two weeks, and now we are finally here at verse 6. We rejoin the story where the captain is waking Jonah up from his nap. From the captain's perspective, as verse 6 tells us, from the captain's perspective, Jonah wasn't doing his part in calling out to the gods. Right? For the sailors and the captain, for all the people on the ship, the options for them were running out. The sailors' gods seemed to be asleep at the wheel. 
And the captain and his crew were about to be capsized and they had nowhere else to turn for help because all their cries, all their pleas for help seemed to be going unheard. And so the captain there in verse 6, the captain finds Jonah sleeping. There he is, the reluctant prophet, the only one who had yet to plead for divine mercy is there sleeping comfortably down in the bottom of the ship. I wonder what the captain was like as he... As he, as he goes down those stairs to wake up Jonah. I wonder, what was his exclamation like? I know my wife and I wake our children up in different ways each morning. Or when, it's, when she goes to wake the children up, she wakes them up with a song. Marin, you want to sing it for us right now? No? <laughs> it's a song that, that the children, I think, have probably come to dread. <laughs> because it means it's time to wake up. Whereas my waking up is, I don't know if it's more gentle or not, but I just individually go around and kind of shake them out of bed and, and, and put my hand on them. And so I, I do wonder, what was it like for the captain to go and, and wake up Jonah? We see here the words Jonah, as he is most likely the author of this book later in his life, Jonah records for us probably what he remembers, that the captain went to Jonah and, and said there in verse 6, you see it there, he says, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. And so we rejoin the story here now as Jonah, this crooked stick, has now rejoined the party of sailors there on deck. And we see here in verse 7, and this is where we're going to start to see how, how, God, is, how God is orchestrating all of these events that God's hand is over all of this. Even though, even though Jonah is trying to run away from the Lord, God doesn't let him. God is chasing him down. We, we learned last week how Jaden told us, how, how Jaden helped us to see how God was hurling this storm right at that ship like a 96 mile per hour fastball. That with great intensity and, and with intentionality, God is sending this storm to wake up Jonah. And we see how God is going to work in the midst of Jonah. So we see here in verse 7, this brings us to our first point as we are reminding ourselves that God's ways are over our own ways and that we can trust him. What we're going to learn here in verse 7 is that God is sovereign over the smallest details. Again, sleepy-eyed Jonah is now there on the deck with the other sailors and and here's what we're learning is that God is sovereign over the smallest details. Because there in verse 7, as Jonah has now awakened, the sailors are now saying to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. So they're, they're trying to figure it out. Their gods aren't, don't, don't seem to be listening to them. And so they go back to the tried and true for in this day and age, uh, the practice of casting lots. Casting lots was a very common practice in the ancient world. It was, a, it was a means of, it was a way of making decisions. Believing that the lots would fall according to divine guidance. Now, the practice of casting lots, these lots may have been small sticks of different lengths. It could have been flat stones. It could have even been hard cubes that we would compare similar to, to today's dice. We know that casting lots is mentioned all throughout the Old Testament. 
A few of those examples include when uh, they were dividing up the land under Joshua's leadership, they cast lots. We know that when they were trying to uncover the sin in the camp of Joshua, they cast lots and the lot fell on Achan. Do you remember that account? We know that there they, they cast lots in choosing Saul as Israel's first king. They cast lots when they were determining the offices and the functions in the temple. It was determined by casting lots. And we also know even there in the New Testament, lots were cast in determining who was going to be the apostle to replace Judas. Now, I think some of us, you know, right now we kind of chuckle at the idea of casting lots. Like, really? You can't make up your own mind? (laughs) I think some of us, probably when we go to a restaurant, we'd be better off casting lots. What am I going to eat? Well, just throw, throw the dice. Chickens tonight. And some of us chuckle but at the idea of casting lots, but I know some of us, as uh, um, John Bean reminded me, that it's like 21 days until the Cowboys have their first game. How does every football game begin? By flipping a coin. <laughs> By casting lots. Right? And so we, we see, even though we don't recognize it, and I'm not, well, yeah, I mean, God is sovereign over that coin flip, isn't he? But, but we understand that this practice of casting lots, we, even, we, we still have echoes of it, even today in our day. And so for the believer, uh, here in this account, here in the Old Testament, the practice of casting lots was essentially saying, let God make the decision. The book of Proverbs tells us, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. You see, in their attempt to uncover the guilty party, and their attempt for the sailors to uncover who's, who's, who's at fault, who's the one who's causing this storm, the sailors turned to casting lots on the deck of the ship. Now, one can only imagine what that scene must have looked like. As all of these big, I just imagine these sailors are like really big, burly men, right? Who probably smell, who probably just, they're just burly guys. Not the type of guy you'd want to meet in a back alley on a dark night. And I like to think of this this scene as as almost a movie scene. That as they're all around trying to figure out who's who's at fault for this, and, and they're they're gathered around there in a circle, and and the person they, they're shaking their hand and they cast their lots like they're playing Yahtzee, right? We can imagine what that must have been like. They cast their lots, and it's like a slow motion vi- video, a slow motion video movie that as the lot teeters. And back and forth, almost like at a basketball game when the ball is going around and around the rim, wondering, is it going to fall in or fall out? And as that lot is teetering back and forth, and all of a sudden it falls on Jonah's name with a thud. You have to wonder, a gasp must have come across the group, and all of a sudden, all these big burly eyes are now looking squarely at Jonah. What's going through Jonah's mind at that point in time? That Jonah is now reminded that no matter how hard he runs from the Lord, he cannot flee, he cannot run away from the presence of God. Jonah is being reminded here, and we, believer, are being reminded that the sovereign hand of God is seen even in the smallest of details where Jonah records for us the lot fell on Jonah. It's a wonderful truth to know that God is in control. When I use that word sovereign, it means that God is is in complete control of it. 
It's a wonderful truth to know that God is sovereign over even the smallest details. That there's not a detail of your life, there's not a detail of my life that goes unchecked by God. That God is Lord over all of it. And that God is worthy to be praised because of that. The Bible tells us there in Psalm 113 that from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. That wherever the rays of the sun hit, wherever the shadow of the nighttime falls, Jesus is there, that God is there and he is sovereign over everything that takes place. Jesus even reminds us in Matthew chapter 10, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I don't know about you, but there are times when I do I think I bristle a little bit at the idea of God being sovereign over every detail, right? Primarily because our prideful hearts, we want control. We do. We, we, we want control. But I think we can take great comfort in knowing that every last detail of your life, every last detail of my life submits to the Lord. This is, this is true when you, even when you find yourself on a ship that's sailing through a storm of consequences due to your own rebellion, that God is still in control of all the details. The passage records for us, the lot fell on Jonah. For a long time I struggled with this reality, I struggled with that whole idea of God's being sovereign and, and man having free will. And I, don't, I really don't debate it a whole lot anymore. Uh, it's, to me, I just don't find it worth debating much. It, because it seems like it's just a beautiful dance between two wonderful dance partners. You find both to be true in Scripture. And I'm reminded, and I think really what kind of put me over the edge to be able to say, hey, I can rest in the fact that God is, he is sovereign, that the lot did fall on Jonah, that God did direct that lot to fall on, with Jonah's name being shown. I was reading a book, uh, Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. I would recommend it to you if you're going through a difficult season of life. Again, Trusting God, I think it's Trusting God When Life Hurts by Jerry Bridges, he made this statement that kind of, it just kind of, it convinced me, and it's a very logical statement. The statement is this, is that if we can't trust God in everything, then can we truly trust God in anything? In other words, if, if God isn't in complete control of all of it, then how do I know when I go to the Lord in prayer if this is under his jurisdiction, See, for me to be able to trust God in anything has to just logically mean that I can trust God in everything, that he is Lord over it all. In our thanksgiving to the Lord, what do we acknowledge? We acknowledge that what God has, has done, what God has purposed, and how he carries that out, and we thank him for it. When we submit to the Lord, what do we acknowledge? We acknowledge that God is sovereign, and that he, his way is trustworthy. When you and I go to the Lord in prayer, what are we doing? When we prayed the Lord's Prayer this morning, what are we praying? What are we, what are we doing? We're acknowledging that we are unable to be in complete control. 
but we're going to the one who is in complete control. Do you struggle? Do you ever find yourself worrying about the circumstances of your life? Charles Spurgeon, many of you maybe have heard this before. Charles Spurgeon has this quote. He says, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night, giving him perfect peace. If God is in complete control, if God's ways are above our own ways, and that he's working out his perfect plan through it all, that means you and I should have a good night's rest each night. That we don't need to stay up worrying. And so I wonder, are you willing to trust in the one who is, control, who is in control over every final detail? The sovereign hand of God proves to be our only hope in our trials. The sovereign hand of God proves to be our only hope in our suffering, in our storms. And we can be confident in the Lord even in the days of great upheaval. Why? Because victory belongs to the Lord and He is in control. So we're reminded that if God is in control, if, if God is sovereign over it all, then God is completely able to use a crooked stick like you and me and all of our missteps and all of our choices of the past and all of the rebellion that we've experienced in our lives, just like Jonah, that God is able to use that to his glory, to work out his good plan for his glory. This then takes us then to the next one, all right? God is going to employ fearful circumstances to move us to faith. And this is where, again, again, it's this idea that God's ways are above our own, and we find ourselves in these situations and in these circumstances, and we do wonder at times, God, have you lost control? Is this outside of your jurisdiction? But what we find next then is how God uses the fear of the sailors to move them to a point of faith. And so God employs fearful circumstances to move us to faith. And so now with the attention of the sailors, they're now focused directly on Jonah in verse 8. These pagan sailors begin an interrogation process of, of Jonah. I can only imagine what that must have felt like for Jonah, having all these big burly sailors, because that's what they look like, I'm sure. Having all these burly sa sailors looking directly at one man, Jonah. And I think they probably had like sailor tattoos and all that scary stuff. Now, some of you are like pulling your, your, your sleeves down, like, am I scary to him if I have a tattoo? So we have here, the sailors are interrogating him, and they say these things. Tell us, they say. Tell us, Jonah, who's responsible for making all of this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And Jonah, he answered, he says, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now we notice Jonah's response. What does it do? His, his response answers most of the sailors' questions regarding who is at fault, who's to blame for the, the waves' anger against the boat. It's Jonah. The sailors come to recognize that Jonah is, that Jonah's God is over heaven and all the earth, right? That's what he says. I worship the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And so now the sailors realize 
Jonah has done something to tick off the God who is over the sea. And so we see their terrified response, their, their, their response in verse 10 and 11. What do they say? They say, this terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. And the sea was getting rougher and rougher. And so they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Now here's an interesting observation that we can make from this passage. Is to note how the book of Jonah emphasizes the fear of the sailors. And their response to this fear. We see the sailors and their fear is mentioned three times in this passage. We see it first there in verse 5. Look there, okay? And you might even underline this word fear. It says, because Jonah, it's, it's brought to our attention. There's a theme here. All the sailors, in verse 5, all the sailors were afraid. And each cried out to his God. And then we jump to verse 10. This terrified them. That word terrified is the same Hebrew word of afraid that's used there in verse 5. And so this terrified them. All right, They're, they're afraid. And they asked, what have you done? And then we jump to verse 16. And again, we find fear or them mention, mention that they were afraid. It says in verse 16, at this, the men greatly feared the Lord of hosts. But here's what, here's what happens. In verse 5, the sailors have a fear of the circumstances. They're afraid of the circumstances. They're afraid of the severe storm that they're facing. The sailors, you have to think about this. The sailors were at the complete mercy of the sea in their mind. And it was a fear that they had. It was this being afraid that drove them to start chucking the cargo overboard. Right? They're giving up their, 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 their possessions. They're giving up their livelihood. They're giving up the cargo that they're going to sail to Tarshish with. And they're going to sell so that they can provide for their families. They toss the cargo overboard. Why? Because they have a fear of the circumstances. Then you jump to verse 10. And it's interesting how, how some passages actually say that they had an intense fear. How some versions translate it that they, there's, there's a, they're afraid, but to a greater degree in verse 10. But now their fear is no longer of the circumstances, but now they're afraid of Jonah's God. You see it there? They're afraid of Jonah's God. Because Jonah has just revealed to them, I worship the God of heaven who is over the sea and the dry land. And so now their fear is no longer of the waves, but their fear now is in the one who controls the waves. Now we learned last week that, and, and here at this point they're thinking that God is angry with Jonah, but I don't think God is angry with Jonah. You see, sometimes we we define God's character based upon our circumstances. And, and the sailors here thought God must be angry with us because he sent this storm. But actually the storm is a display of God's love and his deep mercy for Jonah. So be careful that we don't define God's character based upon our circumstances. And so the sailors now 
are asking Jonah this question, what is it that you have done? What is it that we need to do? And please hurry up and tell us because the sea, the waves are getting angrier and angrier. And what is Jonah's instruction then? Again, they're, they're fearing God, Jonah's God at this point. Okay, they think he's angry with them or with Jonah at least. And so Jonah's instructions to the men is for them to toss him overboard. I mean, this is a stunning request for these fear, for these these sailors who are filled with fear. It's a stunning request that the sailors, and what's even maybe more stunning is that the sailors, like, I think some of us would have been like, hey, that's a good idea. <laughs> he, he's the guy at fault. Let's, let's get rid of him. Just like all the cargo, he's the one. It's his reason. He's the one to blame that we had to get rid of all of our, our, the money that we were going to make. So yeah, let's just go ahead and chuck him overboard. No one will know, right? Let's, let's actually put some concrete blocks on his feet so it sinks him all to the ground, and we'll call the mob boss and tell him we got the job done. But, but, we see, but that's not them, is it? The sailors had, the, the fear of their circumstance is now give it, is leading them to fear the God of the circumstance, the one who's over the circumstance. And instead, and I had, ne- until I started studying this, this passage for this sermon series, I had never caught this. The men, it says there in verse 13, what does it say the men tried to do? Did they immediately just throw him overboard? No. They actually tried to spare his life. Verse 13, the men did their best to row back to the land. What does it tell us though? But they could not because the sea, the waves are getting wilder than before. And then in verse 14, the sailors realize that they have no other option but to do as Jonah instructed them. And what do the, the sailors do now? They're crying out to the Lord. They're crying out to Jehovah. They're, there's, that's, that's a specific, that's a specific, specifically they're crying out to Jonah's God there. Again, this, the, their fear in the circumstances is leading them to fear the God of the circumstances. And so what do the sailors do? They cry out and they say, Lord, have mercy on us for taking this. It's interesting, isn't it? They refer to Jonah as being an innocent man. Because we know that Jonah was living a life in complete disobedience. But they said, forgive us for taking this man's life. And they tossed him overboard. Which then leads us to the third type of fear that is mentioned here, the men proceed to throw Jonah overboard and immediately what happens? The sea stops its raging and it grows calm. That must have been, what a picture that must have been, right? Jonah, boom, he hits the water and all of a sudden, the waves grow calm. In verse 16, here's that third fear of the men. At this, the men, that when, the, when the sea grows calm, what happens now? The men greatly feared the Lord, but their fear is not being afraid of this angry God, but now they have been eyewitnesses of the mercy of God toward them. And what does that do in their circumstance? What's their response now? Worship. Faith. Because see there, it says, verse 16, at this the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made, they made vows 
to him. These sailors are struck with awe and reverence. The men now fear the Lord, not in trembling because of their circumstances, not in fear filled with terror because they they feel that God is somehow angry at them, but instead they've come to see the mercy of God take place right before them and they respond in faith and worship. The fear that began as an emotional response to the circumstances in verse 5 has now begun become a fear that is best described as reverential awe. The sailors who feared the circumstances and God's anger are given a glimpse of God's mercy, of how God's mercy saved them from the storm. See, God brought the sailors to a point of worshiping the one true God through their fears. God employed the fear of the sailors in such a way that the sailors' hearts would be drawn to worship God, to have faith in Him. You see, that which frightened the sailors heightened their experience of seeing God's mercy. Think of this. The intensity of the storm helped the sailors witness firsthand the sovereign mercy of God. If they had not been in the intense storm, if their heart had not been filled with incredible fear, they would have, not, they, they would have missed out on how merciful God truly is. I want you to hear me on this, that God does not delight in bringing the storms into our lives. I don't believe that God delights in bringing affliction or grief on us or allowing it to happen. He does not delight in causing us to be filled with fear. However, God does delight when we respond to our fear and our circumstances by turning to Him in faith. When we respond to those, God delights when we respond to those situations with confidence in His wisdom and His perfect love for us. Church, you cannot, like you can't read, it's it's difficult to, let me rephrase this. Think about the storm, a storm that's listed for us in the New Testament that has very similar characteristics. Do you remember the storm when Jesus calmed the storm in Mark chapter 4? You might recall the story. It has a number of similarities to it, right? The storm is furious. The disciples are filled with fear. (laughs) And Jesus is sleeping, The disciples go down, they wake Jesus up, they're wondering if Jesus even cares for them, and what does Jesus do? Jesus stands and he rebukes the waters, and what happens? The waves immediately become calm. And how do the disciples respond? The disciples are filled with awe and wonder, and Jesus' follow-up question is this, why are you still afraid? Do you still have no faith? We see how God uses, he employs the fear of the sailors to lead them to worship and to faith in him. Jesus there in the New Testament, he looks at the disciples and he says, you're filled with fear because you've not allowed that fear to lead you into faith. So I wonder, for all of us this morning, are you facing a fearful circumstance? 
Do you believe, and I ask you, do you believe that God is sovereign over all the little details, that God is sovereign over the storm? Do you find comfort in knowing that even the wind and the waves obey the Lord? I wonder, could it be that God has allowed us to have these different struggles or these different difficulties or challenges and that if, that if God has allowed us to have a fearful response so that we will turn to him in faith. Think about a parent, right? Parents, if you have young children and your child is, gets afraid and they've wandered away from you and they get, they get scared and what do they do? They call out to you. And it brings, through that fear, it brings them back to your side. And when they're back at your side, they're no longer afraid, are they? Because they trust in you. And I think as followers of Jesus, we should allow those times of fear in our lives to cause us to trust Jesus even more. So are you, whatever you're facing right now, are you allowing God to use your fear of the circumstance to deepen your faith? Are you trusting that God's ways are indeed above our own ways? That God has a way of using crooked situations to make His path straight? Which then takes us to the third point. God works through the unexpected, right? If, now, if many of us, again, I think a lot of us, hopefully, uh, many of us are picking up new little uh, points about this story that maybe we had never known before. Again, uh, some of us, as we learned a couple weeks ago, believe that we were convinced that Jonah was about Jonah and the great white, white shark and not Jonah and the whale, right? So I think many of us are, are we're learning new things about this, aren't we? If you are reading this for the first time, you would be reading this, you'd be reading through the book of Jonah for the first time without any prior knowledge of the book, and you would probably be thinking as you're reading through it, wow, this story did not, this is, this is, not, this is not happening as I may have expected it to, right? How Jonah, the prophet who's supposed to be living obedience to God, he goes missing in action on God. How God then hurls a storm. I mean, how these seaworthy, burly, big, Mean sailors are afraid for their lives and they throw everything overboard. How God uses a pagan captain, captain to rebuke a prophet of God. I mean, there are just so many ironies mixed within this story. And what we are reminded of is that God has a way of working through unexpected events of our lives. Because now, as we've gotten to verse 15... Verse 15, Then they took Jonah and they threw him overboard... And the raging sea grew calm. Verse 16, the men greatly feared the Lord. Okay, so they're, they're having a little worship service. And then verse 17 brings this incredibly stunning occurrence. This unexpected thing that, again, if you were reading it for the first time, you would probably read it again and say, you've got to be kidding me. Right? If you were watching it on the screen, you would, you would want to return 30 or seconds or, or a minute or so in the video. You would say, are you serious? Because what happens? We see it there. Verse 17. Now the Lord <laughs> provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. 
And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Like, if I'm writing the story and I want Jonah to somehow be saved, I'm going to be like, and now the Lord provided the Coast Guard. They showed up. Or now the Lord provided one man who threw him a life preserver. But that's not the case. And of course, just as surprised as we might be when we read that statement, God providing a fish, just as surprised as we might be, think about how surprised Jonah must have been as the fish gulps. I, I kind of wonder what this must have looked like. Like, did God allow Jonah to sink a little bit down in the water and the, and the great fish just gets him? Or, or was Jonah like a bobber, a fisher bo- fishing bobber? You know, right there on the top and a big old, like you've seen it, right? The big old bass just comes right off, right off the top of the water. What must, at what point, did, did the sailors even ever see the great fish come and get Jonah? Right? Uh, you, you have to th- keep in mind, probably most of these sailors very well may have gone on to Tarshish thinking, having in the back of their minds and the conscience that they threw a, a man overboard without ever knowing the end of the story. But we're reminded here is that God, because his ways are above our own ways, is going to work through unexpected ways to bring about his perfect plan for your good and his glory. In all of our lives, there are events that happen which tempt us to question God and his plan. And we often wonder why. And I think these are natural responses, aren't they? Has there ever been a season or a circumstance, an unexpected event that has happened that maybe caused you to question God's plan? See, Jonah is helping to teach us that God is in control and that God will even work in unexpected ways for our good and his glory and that we can take great comfort in in this reality that God does work through the unexpected. It's unexpected to us, not to God. We know that, but still it's unexpected to us. And behind it all, we can know that God is in control that his will is being done because we're learning that God's ways are above our own and that you can trust him. We're learning that God is using a crooked stick like Jonah to show off his mercy for us and for others. And so I guess as we think about this, whatever situation you might find yourself in, I just want to encourage you, don't give up if your life is a crooked mess. Don't give up. But trust in the one who's working out his plan in the midst of that. And turn to him. And believe in him. Believe that God is sovereign over all of those small details. The lot fell to Jonah. That God is in control of all of that. That God's in control of the doctor's report. That God's in control of your financial mess. That you can turn to the Lord because maybe your marriage is really crooked right now. 
that you can go to the Lord praying for your children who are running from the Lord in rebellion. That God's in control of every final detail. And when your heart is filled with fear, don't turn and curse God and say, why me? But say, God, help me to trust in you. Give me the faith to believe that your ways are above my ways. And to know that when the unexpected happens, it doesn't mean that God has lost control. Church, the greatest reminder of how God's ways are above our own is indeed the cross of Calvary. The cross of Calvary reminds us how God's works, how He works in ways that are above our own. Right? Who, who, would ever, who would ever write a script? Who would ever write a story that includes the victor dying on a cross? And while on that cross, looking for those who had just put him on the cross and saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus has a way of showing us how God works, how he flips all of it upside down according to our thoughts, our, our agendas. The cross of Calvary has a way of showing us that those who mourn are going to one day be comforted with joy. Again, taking all of the mess-ups, the crookedness of this world, that those who despair are given a garment of praise, that a crown of beauty is going to replace the, the ashes of brokenness that might define your life. And that the lowly of this world, those who are low in this world according to the systems of this world, will be called oaks of righteousness who are a forest on display for God's splendor. Church, the world scoffs at the cross of Jesus Christ and they call it foolishness. We look to the cross of Jesus Christ and we call it the very power of God. Paul tells us that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. That God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. That God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that, what? So that no one may boast before Him. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness and holiness and redemption. And therefore, as it is written, let, no, let, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Church, God's ways are above our own. And because he's in control of it all, he's trustworthy.